0: with COVID around the world and here and all that, it has surfaced just how important it is to God's people together, together, and how precious these times are, and we are to uh, defend those times and fight for those times as best we can. So what a joy it is to be here today. Some of you know that I'm not supposed to be here today. I'm supposed to be in Italy uh, finishing up a pastor's conference But a week ago, week and a half ago or so, uh, COVID decided to visit our home. And so my daughter-in-law, my grandson, and then my wife all tested positive and had some symptoms with that. And I just decided not to get it. I didn't really want it. So, but then I got to thinking about it, you know, it would help me empathize with others better. And so I said okay, I'll get it too. And so I did. Problem with that is my trip to Italy. And so I was not allowed to go to that, had to cancel that. My quarantine ended yesterday, which I'm grateful for, so I could be here today. The other speaker at the conference, Dr. Rick Holland, uh, had to pick up my three sessions to go with his two sessions. So he did double duty over the weekend, and I'm sure it went well, he's a very gifted preacher as you know. So I've been invited back to preach the conference next year with uh, uh, Pastor Tom Pennington. So I'll I'll look forward uh, to that. But I'm very, very glad to be here with you today. Some of you were here a couple of Wednesday nights ago when I was uh, still uh, testing negative and dealing with something else besides COVID in my voice. And my throat was pretty bad, my voice was pretty bad. And so it's a little better uh, today Uh, Not completely to where it needs to be, but I think it's going to take a while to recover from the trauma of what my vocal cords experienced. But by God's grace, we'll be able to study John 17 together today. John chapter 17, we're not only gathering together again, but we're back in our study of this great chapter, uh, the prayer of the Lord, the true Lord's prayer. I'm going to try to not project too much and just talk more softly than normal. Which my wife appreciates, by the way, because I I tend to, even normal conversations, I I tend to slip into preaching mode. It just sort of happens. I don't mean anything by it, but uh, she feels that brunt of that sometimes, you know. So uh, this has helped me just learn to chill and talk softly and let the guys turn me up a little louder if necessary. John chapter 17, the real Lord's Prayer can not help but think of the difference between items that are genuine versus items that are fake. In many categories, that becomes very important to us to make that distinction. It certainly applies to money. We want to be in possession of and, and utilizing real money and not counterfeit money. There are those experts who can tell the difference, of course. To some people, what might be important to them is to tell the difference between a a genuine diamond and one that's just imitation. Certainly, if we were wanting to talk to a policeman, we would want to talk to a real policeman and not somebody just posing as one. That led me to think about the increase in the number of scam texts and emails that I guess we're all getting. I'm getting them. The number of scam texts per week has dramatically increased. I can only assume that they're finding a market for those things and that there are people who are clicking on those links that really do believe that they're getting some sort of bonus payment back from AT&T or they're getting a new computer or iPad or something if they click on that. Don't do that. They're not real. I only want to talk to a real bank employee, not somebody who's not genuine. I only want to talk to a a real government employee, not someone who's just posing as one to try to steal funds from me. Those are all important categories to us, but the most important category we could possibly examine when it comes to what is genuine and what is real is this one. Who is a genuine believer and who is not? Every other category I could mentioned to you has only to do with this world, our earthly existence. But this category relates to a person's eternal destiny. Now, of course, there is only one source we can go to for help in making a proper evaluation of someone's relationship to God, which means an evaluation of their true spiritual state, and that is Scripture, the Word of God. And there are many passages we could turn to there that would help us think through this important topic, including the very chapter we began studying a few weeks ago, Jesus's personal prayer to his heavenly father in John chapter 17. I mentioned to you that this prayer was prayed aloud by the Lord on the last night before his crucifixion. It was prayed in the hearing of the 11 disciples. There were 12, but Judas had already left that evening to go betray Jesus. The 11 are there, and they hear him make this prayer as they cross the Kidron Valley just to the east side of Jerusalem to to make their way across the brook there and then up the slope of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember this was on the last night before he was crucified. They had been in an upper room in Jerusalem where they had shared their last Passover meal together. Jesus had been instructing them and encouraging them just to prepare them for what life and ministry would be like after he departed. Eventually they left that room, making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, as I said, and it was in that garden that Jesus knew what was waiting for him. Jesus knew that there he would be Betrayed by Judas. He knew he would be arrested. He knew he would have to suffer this unjust trial. And at that trial, he knew he would be sentenced to be crucified. He's facing that there in the valley, about to ascend the Mount of Olives to the garden. He knew what was waiting for him. And What did he do? He stopped and he prayed aloud. I can visualize the 11 disciples with him stopping and looking at one another and looking at him as he raised his face to heaven and began to pray. This prayer divides into three sections. It's the entire chapter, essentially. We looked at the first section already. That's verses 1 to 5. In that section, the Lord Jesus prayed for himself, as I said, the real Lord's prayer. And in that prayer for himself, we found him praying for something that related to the very heart of what his earthly mission was all about, and that was to bring glory to the Father. That was his desire. Even on that last night, even as he faced crucifixion, he desired that he would indeed accomplish that mission of glorifying the Father as the Father glorified him. And his prayer for himself also mentioned the focus of what his earthly message was when he was here. It wasn't a political message. It wasn't a military message or a financial message or a psychological message. It was a message about eternal life, how eternal life is found only in humble, repentant, submissive faith in Christ. He mentions there in the prayer that the Father had given him the authority to proclaim that message, and to give eternal life. And so the proclaiming of that message and the giving of eternal life to his followers, therefore, would be something that brought glory to the Father. We now move on to the second section of the prayer. It's a long section. It starts at verse 6 and goes all the way through verse 19. We won't look at all that today. In this section, Jesus begins to pray for, make petitions for the 11 disciples who were still with him. These were his friends, beloved friends. He was concerned about them, their lives, their ministries. Once Jesus had departed, he knew that they would need the Father's help, and so he prays for them. Of course, we know these men somewhat from Scripture. The weakness of these men had been apparent throughout the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, they're a small group. There's only 11 faithful. They were confused a lot of the time as they observed Jesus, the miracles he did, as they heard his teaching. Yet, in about a month or so after this night, when Jesus prayed for them, about a month later, they were going to begin impacting the world in an amazing way. And no one would have looked at them during those three years or that last night and would have concluded that. No one could have anticipated how God was going to use these men after the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost to literally be the the power behind, the, the motivation behind, the vehicle behind God. Spreading the gospel throughout the known world at that time, the Christian faith was going to experience global expansion through these men, and Jesus knew that. He knew what was coming for them. He knew how they would be used in kingdom work, and so he he prayed for them. And and what a moment that would have been as they stopped there and as the men began to listen in to Jesus' prayer. Now, in future sermons, we will complete the second section and we'll also eventually arrive at the third section of the prayer that's verses 20 to 26. In that section, Jesus then begins to pray for all of his followers that would come in the future, which means that part of the prayer includes prayer for us. Now today we're only going to examine verses 6 through 8 in which Jesus makes it clear that he's praying only for his true followers and not for others. And he provides the grounds of this prayer for the 11 disciples. In other words, Jesus explains the reasons of why he could pray for them. It was because they were genuine followers, genuine disciples. So in his prayer, Jesus rehearses what he knew to be true about these 11 men. Let me read verses 6 to 8. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Now there, pause. I mean, these 11 would have picked up. Oh, now he's praying for us. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So what did Jesus know about these 11? So that he was moved to pray for them and not others. Well, I think it's appropriate to broaden the question. What are some of the timeless realities that identify God's people even still today? It may not be a complete list, but Jesus articulates four of these realities here in these verses that are read. So let's look at them. These... These become the descriptions of the 11, what Jesus knew about them, but these realities apply to all true believers. Here's the first one. God's true people, number one, they possess knowledge of God. They possess knowledge of God. Now look back to verse 3. You'll remember that there Jesus equated knowing God with eternal life. They're the same. To know God is to have eternal life. If you have eternal life, it's because you know God. But now Jesus refers to this knowledge of God a different way. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Now that term manifested means exactly what you think it would mean. It means to reveal something or to make something known. And the tense of the verb that Jesus chose to use, uh, wraps up all that Jesus did in accomplishing this in in one whole as an accomplished fact, something that he perfectly finished. And what was accomplished perfectly was the manifesting, he says, of the Father's name. So in other words, to know God is the same thing as knowing his name. But it's important to realize that in biblical language, The name sums up the whole person. That's how it's used in Scripture. So in this case, it refers to God's whole person, his character, his nature, his attributes, his ways. We know God because we know his name. His name represents all that there is about him. And this is not something new that Jesus is is bringing on the table here to talk about knowledge of God that way. We find in Scripture this has always been a way to refer to knowledge of God. Let me give you some examples from the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Psalm 8, verse 1, familiar words to us. "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In other words, how majestic is your character, your attributes, your ways, your nature. Psalm 9 verse 10, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Psalm 20 verse 7, the psalmist says that some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 115, verse 1, the psalmist prays, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. In Isaiah 52, verse 6, God says this, My people shall know my name. Again, God's name encompasses all that he is. So to know his name is to know him. Let me repeat something I said last time when we were discussing the verse that knowledge of God equates to eternal life. Same thing is true here. Knowing God means more than just a mere intellectual knowledge of God or some sort of intellectual knowledge of his name or just a belief that God exists. This kind of knowledge means to love him. It means to have a personal relationship with him. True believers are those who know who God really is. They know that he is all that his name represents. We believe that he's perfect. We believe that he's holy in character. We believe that he's perfectly just, that he's omniscient, that he's all-powerful, that he's omnipresent. We believe that he's the creator of all things because he has said that he is. We believe that he is the one who is sovereign over all things. His name represents all that truth about him. And all this, Jesus says, was manifested. But look what verse 6 says, only to certain people. Verse 6, to the men whom you gave me. Now here, Jesus is repeating something said earlier in the prayer. Look back at verse 2. It is only to those the Father gave him that he gives eternal life. If someone has eternal life, that means they're someone who is in this group, the ones that the Father gave to the Son. So here is the same affirmation again, that the followers of the Lord are those sovereignly chosen by the Father in eternity past out of all humanity, chosen for salvation and given, it says, given to the Son for the Son to redeem. Jesus articulated that earlier in the prayer, but he articulated it in the Gospel of John before this prayer. I find myself many times in our series here on Sunday morning going back and, and reminding you of some verses from John chapter 6 and sometimes John chapter 10 because those are such important chapters. So let me do that again, John 6, verse 37. Verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Who comes to Christ? Those that the Father gave to the Son. And they're the only ones. And he goes on to say in that verse, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He keeps them. John 6, verse 39, just two verses later. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. So again, God chose a people in his own mind in eternity past to give to his son as a gift of his love for his son to redeem. And these are the ones who are brought into this relationship with the father. And this relationship with the father is the same thing as saying they are the ones who know God. And now we see it's the same thing as saying they are the ones who know his name. So having knowledge of his name, True knowledge of God, that's a reality of all followers of the Lord. Jesus knew that to be true about these 11 men. I'll tell you something else about knowledge of God, knowledge of his name. Once we come to him, the spiritual progress that we want to experience throughout all of our lives as we grow spiritually spiritually, Is another way you can describe that spiritual growth. It is continuing to grow in the knowledge of his name. That's what we're seeking to do here on Sunday mornings, to hear from him and his Word, so that we grow in our knowledge of his name, who he is. In fact, the ones who are God's true people, they want to grow in their knowledge of him. So there's one reality about these 11 men. And we can say it's a reality about all of God's true people. They possess knowledge of God. Number two, they are separated unto God. They are separated unto God. Now Jesus goes on in verse 6 to add another important thought concerning this gift of the people from the Father to the Son. Here's what he says in verse 6. He's manifested God's name to the men whom you gave me. And look what it says, out of the world, out of the world. Now, there was a time, just like everyone else that exists, these people that Jesus is talking about, specifically those 11 men, but we can broaden it to say it's true about all of God's people, there's a point in time when we are born where we are born as part of the world. And we've noted this several times in our study of John that the term for world, in this gospel is 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 almost is usually referring to the fallen world system not the cosmos as far as the created universe but the the world system the the lost world system a system that does not love god that does not love the truth of god's word the scriptures it is in this world that we find people controlled by this basic tenet and that's loving self this world is about a focus on self, loving self. It's a world that elevates personal opinion and personal experience as the final authority on what is right and wrong. That's the world system. So in summary, the world here is the evil, godless system ruled by Satan and is composed of all the unredeemed people and all that opposes God and all that opposes his kingdom of work. Listen to some of what we've already found in John. Here's John seven verse seven. Christ said, "The world hates me because I testify it of it that its deeds are evil john twelve verse thirty one judgment is upon this world john sixteen eleven the ruler of this world, Satan, the ruler of this world, has been judged, and then later on, this same author. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he says there, this whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's the world. So, though we are born into this kingdom called the world, that's, that's where we are when we're born, spiritually dead, because we've been chosen of God before time, and then in time brought to the Lord, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and given spiritual life, from that moment onwards, we are no longer part of the kingdom of this dark world. We have been rescued from the world. We have been plucked out of this world. Now, earlier that evening, back in chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus told the disciples this. Listen, John 15, 19. You are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. The Apostle Paul understood this. There was a time where he was part of the world system. But God saved him. He says this in Galatians 6.14, The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul then therefore writes that believers are not to be conformed by this world system. Romans 12, verse 2 makes it clear. Do not be conformed to this world. Our same author, John, again, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, confirms that we're not to love it. Verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. They can't go together. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. James writes about it and says we're not to be friends with it. James 4 verse 4, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a bottom line thought here. should be clear. Someone is not a Christian if they are not different from the world. In contrast, a lost person is one whose mind is on the things of the world. It's loving the world. Friends of the world. It's a focus on money, prestige, pleasure, comfort, fame. I could go on and on. And don't get me wrong, God's people continue to be plagued by sin throughout this life. There's a reason for that. We carry with us our, what the Bible calls the flesh, our unredeemed humanity. Until we're glorified in heaven, we have to fight the flesh. We give into it at times. We sin. We find ourselves at times influenced by the world that's around us. The Christ's people no longer have the same relationship to sin and to the world that they formerly did. Negatively speaking, though we are still in the world, we are no longer of the world. He puts it in negative terms here. We have been plucked out of the world. But there's another side to this that's very important on this point. There's a positive side to this, and it goes with the negative. The positive is just as important. Look at verse 6 again. They were yours, and you gave them to me. That's right after he says we've been plucked out of the world. There's a reason for that. We're his. Now, that expression, gave, is in that same tense I mentioned earlier. It just kind of wraps up what what the Father did in giving them to the Son, wraps it all that as a, as a, as a point in time in the past that has been completed. Once again, it's a reference to the fact that God, his people were chosen before time, predestined to belong to Christ, and God could do that. He could give the disciples to Jesus. He could give people to the Son. And the reason is, is because they were already his to give. He owned them. This statement confirms the timeless ownership by God of his people. This is why God plucks us out of the world. It's because we are His. And by definition, this confirms something. God didn't just pluck us out of the world to set us aside. God didn't just pluck us out of the world so that we could live some sort of neutral life with no identity at all. Here's the positive side of all this. He separated us from the world to have a new identity, to be given to his son, and therefore to have our lives changed so that we live for him. Said differently, we're not just separated from something, the world, we are separated unto something, unto the one who owns us. Our identity is not just negative. It is true. There's a negative side. We don't belong to the world. But our identity has a positive side. We do belong to the one who owns us. And that's why we've been plucked out of the world system. We actually belong to a different system. So we are separated from, but separated to. And that means there is a great division in mankind. People are one or the other. There are some, many, who belong to the world. And there are others who have been separated by God out of that world, separated to Him because they've always belonged to Him in His eternal mind. What a powerful motivation for living holy lives. You see, it's not enough to just pride ourselves on what we're not. It's not enough to just remind ourselves that we're not supposed to be like the world. That's true, but go beyond that. The most powerful motivation for living holy lives is because of who we are, or even said better, it's because of whose we are. Jesus said it. They were yours. These you've plucked out of the world. They're the ones that belong to you already, and you've given them to me. This is a description, a reality of true believers We not only possess knowledge of God, we are separated unto God. That brings us to the third one. They are devoted to the truth of God. They possess knowledge of God, they are separated unto God, they are devoted to the truth of God. Now everything I've been saying so far, really, if you think about it, is from the divine side. True believers are those who are sovereignly chosen by God, by the Father, given to the Son, for the Son to redeem, They're the ones that God sovereignly rescues, plucks out of the world, and separates them unto himself because he owns them. But there's a human side. True believers can be described in terms of their response. Their response to something in particular, to God's disclosed truth. Verse 6 goes on, And they have kept your word. Now, Jesus is saying that these 11 men, he actually called them to himself, he chose them, selected them. But now we see that he knew something else about them, that they personally responded to that. They personally responded in faith to the truth, God's word, that was revealed to them. And then they proved that relationship to the Lord, according to Jesus, by the fact that they have kept God's word. That term means more than just merely assenting to the teaching, just sort of liking the Bible as a a good thing to read sometimes. No, it's embracing the truth in a lifestyle of obedience. Now, that might be a little shocking to us, to hear Jesus say this about these men. I mean, again, we know something about these disciples. As I said, they were confused a lot along the way. They were doubting a lot. They were fearful a lot of the times. And so we're we're shocked that Jesus would say, Father, they kept the word. I mean, was Jesus not aware of how weak these men really were? Was he just glossing over their weaknesses? No, not at all. He does assert, though. Even though he was aware of their weaknesses, he asserts that they had this basic foundation of the truth. In other words, from their heart, they were committed to the reality that God has a will, God has a truth, His truth is right, His will is perfect, and that whatever He does reveal, we must believe. Which means they had responded in genuine faith to whatever truth they did understand. Now there's one more thing grammatically here that D.A. Carson points out, and I think it's helpful, I think it's important. In the fourth gospel... When Jesus refers to his words, plural, he's talking about the individual precepts and commands that he lays down. You'll find that in John chapter 14, verse 21, about the commandments, plural, the words, plural, that we are to obey them. Carson points out that when Jesus refers to his words, singular, he's talking about the message as a whole. Which means it's basically equivalent to the Gospel message of who Christ is and what he's doing in our verse. It's singular, so Jesus is not trying to say that his disciples literally perfectly obeyed every single detail of what Jesus commanded. He's not trying to say that they had displayed this this unbelievable mature conformity to his words but they had committed themselves unreservably to the basic word, the word, the fact that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the long-awaited Messiah. They believed that Jesus is the one who truly reveals the Father. There was a lot more for them to come to understand, and they would after Jesus rose from the dead and after the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. But where they were, At that point in time is what you need to understand here. To get the point of Jesus' affirmation of their obedience, you need to compare apples to apples. Compare the belief and the faithfulness and the obedience of these 11 before the resurrection to the unbelief and disobedience of the rest of the world before the resurrection. Judged by those standards, these 11 stood out. They believed. That Jesus was speaking the truth. And this obedience to the truth is on their part, was not something that contributed to their salvation. We know what Scripture says, Galatians 2:16, a man is not justified, saved by the works of the law. But this kind of embracing of the truth and seeking to keep it is the result of genuine saving faith, always. That's still true today. True believers. Love the truth. We don't understand all of it, but what we understand, we know we are to love. We know that we're to love even the parts we don't understand because it's God's word. We know that is true, as God's people, we're to treasure the truth and we're to seek to keep it, to obey it. Do you know that in the New Testament, saving faith and belief and obedience are actually so closely tied that you can use them as synonyms? Listen to a good example of that. It was back in John chapter 3, verse 36. Christ said this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not, you'd expect him to say believe, will not see life, but he didn't. He substituted the word obey. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Why? Because genuine belief and the seeking of obedience to keep the word go together always. You see a great illustration, I think, in Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. I preached on this several weeks ago. It's our view of counseling, using the Word of God to speak to the issues in people's lives. Psalm 1 pictures this person who who rejects the counsel of the world, and loves the law of God, meditates it, seeks to keep it, to apply it to his life, and says this man is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. It's lush, and it grows, and it brings forth spiritual fruit. And notice that Jesus says that this truth belongs to God, has the pronoun you there, that denotes divine possession of the word. It's God's truth. Man didn't originate it. We'll even find Jesus praying this later on in verse 17. He prays to the Father about, all, about these men. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's His. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 calls it the word of God that they had responded to. And he says in the same passage in 1 Thessalonians 2, it's the word of God that was working mightily in them. It's not a word of man. Here's the bottom line. It's articulated by Jesus himself in John chapter 5, verse 24. John 5, 24. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Believing for eternal life and salvation and hearing and believing the word cannot be separated. So three descriptions so far. If you think about it, Jesus has described his people, first of all, in their relationship to the knowledge of God. Then he goes on and describes them in their relationship to the world. They've been plucked out from it and are separated unto God. Then he describes their relationship and how it's connected to the truth, the word of God. They embrace it and they seek to keep it. This final description, number four, more directly now relates to Jesus himself. Here's number four. They are submitted to the Son of God. They possess knowledge of God. They are separated unto God. They are devoted to the truth of God. And forth they are submitted to the Son of God. There are plenty of people who would say that they admire Jesus. But true saving faith embodies more than that, more than an admiration of Jesus. It, it embodies more than just an acknowledgement of Jesus. It is a faith, and get this, it is a faith that realizes the relationship between the Son and the Father, which means true saving faith affirms that Jesus is divine. He's God. Verse 7, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Now, of course, we've already noted these disciples struggled with fully comprehending almost everything, Along the way, but their comprehension kept increasing. And they were at least beginning to truly understand the mission that the Father had given to Jesus. They had come to affirm he was indeed the long awaited Messiah. Do you remember that occasion in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus was with his disciples and he asked them, Whom do people say that I am? Well, as you know, Peter answered, but he was answering for the whole group. And here's what he said in Matthew 16, verse 16. You are the Christ, which means Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is an articulation of the deity of Christ. The disciples had come to believe that, that he worked by the power of God. He did everything according to his Father's will. They came to believe it because they saw the miracles that he did. They came to believe it because they heard his teaching that had authority to it like nobody else's teaching had. They, they saw him not just pray that night in the, in the valley of Kidron. They, they saw him praying many times in communion with his father. They saw Jesus interact with all the sinners of the world and yet he was never influenced to sin. They heard The Father say at Jesus' baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Some of them had seen what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw the glory of the son in a unique way. They truly did come to the conviction that Jesus was sent by God. He taught the truth that was God's truth. And as a result of that, they wholeheartedly submitted their lives unto him. Now, verse 8 expands further on what they recognize about Jesus. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them, and they received them. They got it. They knew where these words were from, from God. Now, the word words here is a different word. In the Greek, it's the term remata. It's a term that refers to all his individual utterances. So here, Jesus is saying that everything he uttered that came out of his mouth, all the individual statements. The Father is the one who gave him those things to say, and the disciples accepted it as true revelation from God. Therefore, these disciples did understand his divine origin, which verse 8 goes on to confirm, verse 8. And they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. This marked those eleven men, Jesus knew that about them, and these are the realities of all of christ's true people. It might be that his people sometimes don't understand everything in the Bible correctly. We get it that we have much to learn and much holiness to to still attain, but we know Jesus is the one promised by God in the scriptures; He is divine. He is God, and we know therefore the only proper response is devoted submission to him as Lord. This is still true today. The way for someone to join the people of Christ is by hearing the biblical truth about him, who he is, what he's done. It's examining that claim on his part that he's from the Father and that he's God. It is embracing all that as being true and responding to it in submission to him as the Lord of our lives. Those who do that are the ones who persevere in that faith and persevere in that submission all the way to the end of their lives. How do you describe God's true people? The way Jesus described those 11. They possess knowledge of God. They're separated unto God. They're devoted to the truth of God. They're submitted to the Son of God. All those realities were true of these original disciples, except for Judas. And that is why Jesus prayed for them, which we'll look at next time. The question for today is, do you know God this way? Is he your father? Have you come to embrace all that is represented by his name in Scripture and to believe it's true? Do you sense that there's a difference between you and this world system? Do you sense that difference, including the fact that you understand that you reject the world's agendas? You reject the world's narratives that are swirling around us today? You understand that you've come to reject the world's priorities? Do you believe that his word is the truth? and that that truth is your final authority and you have a desire to keep it? Have you come to the place of expressing saving faith in Jesus, which includes the desire to submit to him as the Lord of your life, since he is divine? If all that does not describe where you are, then for you, the biblical invitation, really the biblical command is come to Jesus. Receive him in true faith. Embrace the truth of his word. If that's a struggle for you, and if you are unsure that you are truly among the people of Christ, well, Scripture says that kind of faith is a gift from God, and that's what you should pray. Ask God to give you the faith to believe all of that so that you can be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for drawing to our attention what you understand about your true people, what Christ understood about those 11, which is the reason he could pray for them and not pray for others. Lord, if we are in Christ, may we rejoice in who we are, in whose we are. Father, I pray for anyone that cannot genuinely say these are the descriptions, the realities of my life. May you give them saving faith that they might respond to the truth and be forgiven of all their sin. In our Savior's name, amen.